struggling with it. My fingers are too big for it. You know, they really are. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, good morning all. Lovely to see you on this wet day. I was reminded that uh, in the Bible, of course, rain is a sign of God's blessing. If you're in the Middle East, rain is an awesome blessing. So God seeks to bring us blessing, and I pray that he does that. Um, even for us as we're here this morning. In 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18, the Apostle Paul writes as follows, We all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. The more we look at Jesus, the more like him we become. Paul is saying that the genuine transformation of our hearts, genuine change to become more like Jesus, genuine repentance and transformation into the image of Christ, genuine progress in Christian living comes not from following a detailed church program of discipleship, not from a stricter diet, not from using a swear box, not from greater accountability, but for one reason only, and that reason is our focus and our gaze upon the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That's Paul's point in, 1 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 3.18. Whatever we watch, whatever we spend time in, whatever we listen to, whatever we listen to, whatever we spend our time reading, these are the things that change our soul. Should that not be a warning to us all? Not, you are what you eat. But you are what you watch, you are what you listen to, you are where your focus lies. And for Paul then, to grow as a Christian requires one thing, one thing only, to contemplate the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. (coughs) So this morning, as we look at the first chapter of Revelation, in our modern translations, the very first words of this letter are the revelation of Jesus Christ. In the Greek, that's three words only, apocalypsis and Jesus Christ, three words to begin. And apocalypsis means one thing, it means unveiling, making known, making clear. Because the purpose of the book of Revelation is that we might see Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 3, we, with unveiled faces, if we're Christians, the veil is lifted, rather like the Apostle Paul, After his experience with the risen Christ on the road road to Damascus, the scales had fallen from his eyes. We, with unveiled faces, writes the Apostle Paul, now in Revelation 1, it is the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ that is unveiled to us, made known to us, because above all else, our primary need is to see Jesus. Whatever our circumstances in life, whatever the state of our nation, whatever happens with Brexit, however much pain we may experience, however deep our sorrow and our grief, however large the obstacle may be in our way, however bleak 
things may look. Our primary need is to see Jesus our radiant King. And seeing Jesus as our radiant King should be our primary joy. And as John writes this, this is the focus, to contemplate the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look how he writes. Among the lampstands is somebody like a son of man. That's language right out of Daniel chapter 7, by the way. We don't have time to go there this morning. Jesus, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head is white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes are like blazing fire. His feet were like the bronze glowing in a furnace, his voice like the sound of rushing waters. In the right hand he holds seven stars, coming out of his mouth is a sharp double-edged sword. His face is like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet. How can we be anything but stirred and warmed by a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ? And notice this isn't a picture of what Jesus Christ will be like at some point in the future. This is how Jesus is now. This is an unveiling of what's happening behind the scenes now, in the present. This is the glorious and radiant King. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And the one who in every way draws us to bow before him in worship and in love and in praise. So in the text today, we're going to see three different phases that John moves us through. First of all, our ravaged community. That's where he begins. We are suffering. But then God's resounding call. And of course, that leads us to our radiant king. Do you see John's twin thoughts here back in verse 9? Please have it open in front of you as we read, or maybe it could be up here. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was in the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. John is in his 90s when he writes this. He's on a rocky and an inhospitable island, Patmos. And why is he on the Isle of Patmos? Answer, because he's been exiled there, probably because of Emperor Domitian. And he's probably forced to do hard labour. And why is that? Well, he tells us, doesn't he, right here. Because of the word of God and because of the testimony of Jesus Christ. In other words, because he has stood and testified to the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus as the only way by which we might be saved, he finds himself in exile and he suffers. That's half of his twin thought. But he's not suffering alone, is he? Look at what it says in verse 9. John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours, he writes. Not only is he suffering, he is writing to a suffering church. He's writing to people who struggle. And they struggle because they're Christians. All people have their difficulties, their pains, and their sorrows, of course. But Christians have the added suffering of ridicule or rejection or persecution because we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are millions of Christians around the world who can testify to that in ways that most of us could never imagine. And Paul wrote, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will what? Will be persecuted. It is an expectation. And at the end of the day, it's impossible to live in line with God's kingdom and not to face some kind of persecution. Indeed, if we do not suffer for Christ, then perhaps we are not servants of Christ. Think about John's credentials for a moment. He was a close personal friend of Jesus. He leant back on his breast, remember, 
He's part of the inner circle. He has intimate, first-hand knowledge of Jesus' ministry. He was an eyewitness of Jesus' crucifixion and death. He was protector and provider for Jesus' mother after his death. And he's one of the first to see the empty tomb and to realise Jesus has been raised. He saw and believed, remember, he writes. And according to Paul in Galatians 2, he was a pillar of faith in the church in Jerusalem. And according to tradition, when the church was scattered throughout persecution, John went to Ephesus where he played a leading role in the church there. He has amazing credentials. But here, he ignores them all. And he says, I am your brother and companion. Or literally, I am a fellowshipper. I am with you in this suffering. He's not standing in relation to God's people, seeking it to lord it over them. That's not his desire here. Rather, he is standing alongside God's people and with them. We have a common experience of suffering because of our faith, is his point. And at root, of course, this this communality, this unity, grows from the suffering of the Lord Jesus himself, the man of sorrows, the one who underwent much suffering, more suffering than we could imagine. And if we're Christians this morning, we have our lives in common, not just with each other, with other Christians around the world, amazing though that is, Beneath and above all that, we have our lives in common with the Lord Jesus himself, who suffered that we might live. We're in it together. We're a ravaged community. That's where John begins. But then we come to God's resounding call here in verse 10. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit. Perhaps this was any other ordinary Sunday. As ordinary as it might be for someone in exile, for somebody who's under persecution. But now, even as he's alone in this exile, on this Sunday, he is in the Spirit and he hears a loud voice. On this day, as God's people gather in the churches to whom he is writing, he finds himself writing this letter of encouragement to them. And on this day, God lifts the veil of the unseen. And we see Jesus. And I pray the same is true for us here too, that on this day, God too lifts the veil then we might see our radiant king. John is in the spirit, notice. He's not asleep. He's not dreaming. Dreaming is what happens when you're asleep. No, he's having a vision. He's very much awake. In fact, you might say he's now more awake than he has ever been. (coughs) Suddenly he's awakened to the spiritual reality behind what is happening and what we normally see. And the notion of being in the spirit, of course, is an echo from the prophet's. It's a common phrase used to describe the experience of the prophets as they saw visions or as they wrote God's words. And John is directing us back to those prophets and claiming the same authority. Since John is in the spirit as he receives this vision, we can be confident this is a prophetic utterance from God himself on equal footing to that of the prophets in the Old Testament. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a voice, a loud voice, like a trumpet. Loud, strident, commanding, resounding voice. And John finds he has no choice. He must write what he sees. Do you notice, twice he is instructed to write it down. Write what you see, verse 11. Write what you see, verse 19. 
He must write it down. Write on a scroll what you see. Send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Write it down, he is instructed. Now you may ask, why? Why these seven churches? I mean, why not the church in Jerusalem? Why not the church at Rome? Why not the church in Antioch? I mean, surely there are more important churches that he might write to. Why these seven? Well, possibly five quick reasons for you. Number one, if you look at them on a map, you'll realise they lie on a fairly circular trade route following a known Roman, ro uh, known Roman world. Uh, road. Blah. So, so if you're going to write these letters in the order in which John writes them, you would deliver them in that order as you follow this mail route. Second, John is on Patmos, and one of the closest ports to Patmos is, of course, the port of Ephesus. It's an easy place to get to from where he is. <coughs> Thirdly, after his ministry in Jerusalem, as we've noted, John probably spent some time ministering in Ephesus. Early church history tells us that John taught Polycarp, who became Bishop of Smyrna. In other words, one of the compelling reasons why he wrote to these seven churches, perhaps, is that these are the churches that are closest to his heart. He knows them and he loves them in a way that he doesn't know other churches. They're the ones he knew best. Fourthly, when we consider all the problems that can assail a church and its people, we might think of financial issues, moral issues, pastoral issues, doctrinal issues, relational issues, discipleship issues, leadership issues. As you look at these seven letters, you discover all of those issues are somehow covered by these seven churches. That is to say, these seven churches collectively reflect the church worldwide. And that leads us to number five. The fifth reason is this. The number seven is used 54 times in Revelation. And regularly throughout the Bible as a number for completeness and for fullness. The universe, of course, created, completed, and rested from creation in seven days. And that began a seven-day cycle. We still have a seven-day week. And in his Gospel, John himself records seven signs or miracles that point to the Lord Jesus Christ. And here in Revelation, we have seven churches. Highlighting not that this was intended only for those seven particular churches, but rather it's written for the whole church of God. And friends, if it's written for the whole church of God, that includes Milford Baptist this morning, does it not? Written for us all. In perhaps the first ever list of the books of the New Testament, a document called the Muratorian Fragment of AD 170, we find these words written about Revelation. For John, though he wrote in Revelation to seven churches, nevertheless he speaks to them all. There's a message here for all of God's people, you see. For every local church across the world. They're written by John for their benefit, but also for ours. And look back at the language of verse 12 and 13. Then I turned and, see, and saw the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man. We didn't read verse 20, but verse 20 tells us that the seven lampstands are the seven churches that are described in verse 11. And where is the radiant Lord Jesus? Well, he's in the midst of the lampstands, is he not? He's in the midst of these churches. At the end of his ministry, Jesus said, Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I will never leave you nor forsake you, God said in the Old Testament and is echoed in the book of Hebrews. And here is Jesus 
among the lampstands, among his people, exactly where he promised he would be. He is here today, friends, meeting with us as we come together as his church. Yes, he's in supreme authority, he has supreme power, he is an awesome figure, as we're about to see. But he's also here, present, with us, in a wonderful way. And so whatever our struggles, whatever our suffering, Jesus is alongside, he is near you, he is with you, if you are a follower of Jesus. And God's resounding call goes not just to the seven churches of Asia Minor, but it goes to all of God's church across the world and down through the ages. And notice, God is not saying, here's a description of Jesus so that you can draw him or make an image of him. No, Paul is describing, uh, John sorry, is describing what he saw, but what he saw is not primarily what Jesus looked like, but what Jesus is like. In other words, whilst John describes what he sees, those images tell us something about Jesus' character not about his complexion. And God's resounding call to John and then, and then on to us is that we see Jesus, our radiant king, which is where John goes <coughs> thirdly in chapter 1. And in this remarkable description, in these four verses, John shows us eight different aspects of Jesus as Lord and King, now and present. So let's look at them briefly. First of all, a long robe and a golden sash. Now that, of course, could refer to Jesus' royal function, especially the phrase long robe. I've heard that when a king defeated his enemy in battle, he would cut off a bit of the bottom of the robe of the defeated king and have it sewn into his own robe. In other words, the more kings you defeated, the longer your robe got. This might be why David was conscience-stricken when he cut a corner off Saul's robe in the cave, you may remember. Because he's saying, I am in victory over you. And he's suddenly conscience-stricken and said, no, this is the Lord's anointed. I should not have done this. Or when Isaiah sees the Lord and he says, the train of his robe filled the temple. The utterly glorious king, you see, with a robe that goes on and on. And here we see Jesus with a long robe. But this robe also refers to his priestly function. In fact, if you read the Old Testament translated into Greek, the Septuagint, you'll find the same word used here for robe is almost always used for the robe of a priest. Because yes, Jesus is the glorious and victorious king, but he's also the priest who stands in our place. It refers also to his priestly function. He is our great high priest, remember, because of his sacrifice. And only because of his sacrifice on the cross can we have a relationship with God in the first place. <coughs> He's our victorious king, priest, long robe, golden sash. Secondly, white hair, pure like wool. The background, as we've said, is this vision of, of uh, Daniel in Daniel 7 and Daniel 10, which we haven't time to explore. But in Daniel 7, it's God the Father who has white hair. And here in this reflective vision, we have Jesus the Son with the white hair. I and the Father are one, Jesus said in John 10, 30. And here in Revelation is yet another depiction of the deity of Christ. Beyond that, whilst white hair sometimes signifies righteousness, more often in the Bible, and indeed more commonly, it reflects the dignity and the wisdom of old age. White hair is a crown of glory. So he reads Proverbs 16. 
John Piper once pointed out that our culture strives for youthfulness. Staying young is seen as the most important thing. And increasingly, our society marginalizes the aged. But that is to our shame. There is great insight, understanding, wisdom that comes only with age, and we ignore it at our peril. It is never a good thing when a culture stops honoring the aged. Rising in honor, giving up a seat, asking for insight. We lose such things at our peril. Of course, often we equate old age with infirmity and sickness and deterioration. But friends, that's old age in a broken and fallen world. Think of this, when Jesus died, he was 33 years of age. He probably didn't have white hair. But here he is, now, in the heavenlies, crowned with white hair of glory. Gloriously old, without all the infirmity and deterioration and all of that. But with all the wisdom, all the insight, and all that we need. Fully mature, fully wise without pain or wrinkle, full of youthful energy and vigour and determination, but above that, gloriously old. Number three, eyes like flaming fire. This refers, of course, to Jesus' penetrating insight into the human heart. You can hide nothing from the Son of Man, friends. He knows everything there is to know about you and me, far more than we ever know about ourselves. You cannot run, you cannot hide, and one day all will be laid bare and brought into the light. And therefore better to repent now before his gaze than to face his gaze of judgment later. His knowledge of us is total. We can hide nothing from him, and yet he still loves us. He still loves you, despite all of that that he knows. Isn't that amazing? Number four, his feet are like burnished bronze purified in the fire. Burnished bronze in the Bible is usually something to do with sin. It's the bronze serpent that's raised in the desert in order for people to be rescued from God's judgment, you might remember. It's an altar of bronze upon which the sacrifices for sins are made outside of the tabernacle. And it's these bronzed feet of Jesus here described in Revelation which earlier walked to the hill outside of Jerusalem where he was nailed to a, to a cross to deal with our sin once and for all if we will only submit to him. Eyes like flaming fire that bore into your heart and expose your sin and your dirt and your mess and your brokenness but feet like burnished bronze that walk to a cross and have a nail put through them on your behalf and on mine. The feet of the priest who offers himself as our sacrifice. And of course the feet of the king who is gloriously raised, victorious over death. And the feet of the Lord before whom we bow in worship as Mary did, weeping and wet them with her tears. Feet of burnished bronze. Fifthly, a voice like the voice of many waters. I think John is probably thinking of the pounding waves of the Mediterranean as he writes from this cave on the shoreline in Patmos. And the voice of Jesus is like that. It's loud, it's incessant. It doesn't give up, it doesn't go away. It just keeps on, keeps on, keeps on coming. 
And John is saying, take the earphones out for a minute. Listen for a change. Stop trying to drown his voice. With his voice, he created all that there is, remember. Don't underestimate the power of his voice. He pursues you with it. Day and night. Day and night. Day and night. For week, for month, for year, for decade. And he will continue to do so because he is determined to provide every opportunity possible for us to come to our senses and bow before him in submission. And to be welcomed into his family as a finally adopted prodigal. His burning eyes search your heart and know you. His feet have walked the road and paid the price for you. And now his voice resounds for you every single day, relentlessly expressing his love and desire for you to be his. Did you notice back in verse 10 that John is facing the wrong way? I heard a voice behind me, he writes. And then in verse 12, what happens? He turns. Perhaps all of your life you face the wrong way and the voice is coming behind you and Jesus cries, you need to turn because then you will see the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So I urge you to heed the relentless call of Jesus. Turn, repent, submit, be saved because if you turn, finally, you see Jesus high and lifted up whose voice is relentless. But John doesn't stop there. In verse 16, Jesus holds the seven stars in his right hand. Something being held in the right hand signifies complete authority and control over it. The number seven, remember, represents completeness and fullness. And we discover in verse 20 that these seven stars represent the messengers or perhaps the wider church leaders of those seven churches. So this is the picture of Jesus who remains and is utterly in authority and control over all things all of his church, all of his leaders, because he reigns as the radiant king. And then, seventhly, there is a sharp two-edged sword in his mouth. Remember, this is not a picture of his physicality. Having a sword in your mouth would make it difficult to speak, would it not? This is a symbol of his, not complexion, but of his character. And from Ephesians 6, and from Hebrews 4, we know frequently God uses sword imagery to describe what? God's word. God's word. Hebrews reminds us the word of God is living and active, sharper than what? Any double-edged sword. Penetrates to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Ephesians 6 tells us to do what? Take up the sword of the spirit, which is what? The word of God. So it makes sense that this vision in Revelation finds Jesus with a sharp double-edged sword coming from his mouth because the words of Jesus are right here. Not there, here. These are his words, yes? And they do primarily offensive work. For those who are not Christians, those words press in on you, urging you to salvation, as we, as we have said. They're a sharp sword. And for those who are, his words press in on us too, urging us once again to repentance and trust, comforting us in our challenges, Challenging us in our comfortableness. But in the end, the sword is two-edged. If we've responded, 
to the voice of Jesus and the sword, the word of God, makes us more and more like him. But if we haven't, it signals his judgment that's coming. The words of the mouth of Jesus are sharp, powerful and effective. And where does John leave us? With the eighth image, he leaves us finally with Jesus' radiant face. Should remind us of Moses coming down the mountain when he's met with, the, with God himself up Sinai. And his face is shining. He comes out of the tabernacle where he's met with the Lord God and his face is radiant. Reflecting, you see, the glory of the Lord Jesus. At the transfiguration, we had an insight into the glory of the radiant face of Jesus as he's transfigured before Peter and James and John. His face shining dazzlingly bright, radiantly glorious. Now we see but in a mirror dimly in this fallen world. But when the veil is lifted, when we get to glory, we will see face to face. Remember where we started in 2 Corinthians 3.18? We all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. As we contemplate the radiant face of Jesus, so we are transformed. And notice again, this is not a vision about something that's going to happen at some point in the future. This is the radiant face of Jesus now. Jesus as he is right now. Remember in the Old Testament, Job persevered under great trial and certainly for a while he had no idea what was being played out in the heavenly realms. And as we read the book of Job, we're encouraged because we realise there's more going on here that Job doesn't know about. And that encourages us to think, well, maybe there's more going on here now that we, we don't know about in our circumstances also. And here in Revelation, the unveiling... Apocalypsis, making known, we realise that Christ is reigning as king despite everything that may be happening in my own life and in yours. Jesus is reigning as king. The veil is drawn back. He is triumphant. And what should be our response to this glorious vision? Well, what does John do when he sees the radiant Jesus? It's right there in the text. He falls at his feet in worship. Remember what happened to Isaiah in Isaiah 6. Woe is me, for I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. In other words, the radiance of Jesus exposes our heart, expresses the depth of our sin. And we fall before him. And we fall before him either in worship at this glorious Lord Jesus or because we know that judgment is falling. And if you're not a Christian, know this. Either you come before Jesus in repentance and faith now, recognising your sinfulness and need for salvation, or one day the veil finally will be lifted and you will know the depth of the depravity of your own heart and the eternal judgment to which you will be sent. If you come now, forgiveness is available. And Jesus puts his hand on your shoulder, if you like, and he says, do not be afraid. Why? In the text, because I hold the keys of death. I I can save you. You can live in glorious submission to me from now on. But if you don't come now, you may never come. 
And if you never come, you will one day see his glorious radiance and you will fall as though dead and spiritually remain so, separated from him forevermore when it's too late. Now is the time, John is saying, friends. Now is the time for salvation. Look back at the list of the character of the Lord Jesus. Jesus, our victorious king priest. Jesus, gloriously wise. Jesus knows everything there is about us. Jesus paid the price for us. Jesus calls relentlessly to us. Jesus is in complete control over us. His words are sharp and powerful and his face radiates with glory. And now look at the end of verse 17. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I was alive, I died, now I'm alive forevermore. Jesus' death is not just the center point of that little paragraph, it's the center point of all of history. And because he lived and died and lives again, now he has control over death, even yours and mine, because he holds the keys, you see, and he's the radiant and victorious king. And therefore, if we are his, we have utter confidence where we're heading. We know what awaits. And that encourages us to face the present as we submit to our radiant king, as our Lord. Even today, for the first time, for the 101st time, he shines in radiant glory as our king. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we confess that so often we go about our daily lives, the busyness of life, the things that seem so pressing. 